chapter 2 as we continue our study here on living life in the liberty of Christ. We're coming to the close of chapter 2 in the first section. We'll have one more message here out of chapter 2 next week. And that will close out uh, this first section in the book of Galatians, uh, which is Paul's defense of the gospel that he preached. And so uh, we're going to cover Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 11 through 16 tonight. So I invite you to stand once you found your place in honor of God's word. And we'll read Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. A um, little bit of an intense encounter here between two predominant men in the church. And so we're going to be talking tonight about this, confronted by the gospel, confronted by the gospel. So may God bless his word. You can be seated. We'll get right into the message. When it comes to confrontation, there are two kinds of people. There are those who fear any form of confrontation. They want nothing to do with it. They run and hide from confrontation. They might let people walk all over them and, and have their way with them. They might let people talk all over them and dress them down. And they, they just completely hate confrontation, want nothing to do with it. Then there are those who absolutely love confrontation. They love getting in people's faces. They cherish the opportunity to be argumentative, to debate people, to rebuke and correct people. Sometimes they argue just because it's fun to argue. <laughs> when I was a youth pastor, we had a couple teenagers in our youth group that they would argue over the most ridiculous things like which is harder to play, a trumpet or a saxophone? Or they would argue over things like, is it called a chicken sandwich or a chicken burger? I mean, just yeah, you can imagine. And these were not middle schoolers. They were high schoolers. They were sophomores and juniors in high school. And so some people just love the idea of confrontation while others hate it. Well, if you're one of those that hates confrontation, then this text would make you want to run away. I mean, here you've got the Apostle Paul who very publicly gets in Peter's face, confronting him about his actions toward the Gentile Christians. It looks like a heated face-off between two pillars of the New Testament church. But we know this, that the Apostle Paul is motivated by a zealous passion for the truth of the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles. That's what's burning him up and eating him up inside. 
But as Paul gives us this account, it's really part of a larger argument uh, for the gospel that he was preaching, the validity of the gospel he was preaching to the Gentiles. And so as we've made our way through Galatians, what we've seen is this, is that the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. And behind him were following these Judaizers who were preaching salvation by grace through faith in Christ, plus the works of the law. And so they had both sides going to it. Well, they accused Paul of having a false gospel, one that differed from the one that was being preached at Jerusalem. And so what Paul's done here in this first section is he's established the validity of his gospel based on the fact that he did not receive his gospel from any man or any group of men nor from the apostles at Jerusalem in the first place. Well, where did he get his gospel from? Directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in fact, he tells us in the beginning of chapter two, what we looked at last week is that he went to Jerusalem to Peter, James and John just to make sure they were preaching the right gospel. And by the end of that account, they extended the right hand of fellowship and they demonstrated that, yes, we are in agreement about the gospel. Well, just because you're in agreement doesn't mean everything's perfect all the time. And so Paul gives us this account that we have before us tonight of a time when he had to confront Peter because his actions were out of alignment with what he believed. And the reason why he's bringing this up is to show them that the gospel is not subject to the actions of even an apostle. That it doesn't matter what, even if it's an apostle, if he chooses to act in contradiction to the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, then he is wrong. That's what he's showing them. And so even in this particular account, he's saying, my gospel is vindicated. It's, it's valid. It's truthful. Well, what was it about Peter's actions that demanded Paul's confrontation. And we need to consider that because the reality is if a man like Peter could act in a way that was worthy of confrontation, then I would venture to say it's possible that sometimes our actions can be out of alignment and we can live and we can act in a way that's not consistent with our beliefs. And so what are those times that we need to be confronted and how? How do you confront somebody whose actions are out of alignment? So Paul confronts Peter for the way that he withdrew himself from the Gentile brethren. If you look with me at verse 11, it says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, so it tells us that he had come to Antioch. And if we're following our, our timeline that we've tried to, uh, tried to reason out from the book of Acts, we've talked about how uh, the first part of chapter 2 is referring to Acts 11 when Paul and Barnabas brought the offering down from Antioch to Jerusalem, that that was likely the time that he met with Peter, James, and John. And so and it was, this was happening before the Jerusalem council as well. And so what this leads us to believe is that the time when Peter went to Antioch was probably in Acts chapter 12 after he had been imprisoned after the beheading of James. He had been miraculously released from prison by an angel of God. He goes to Mary's house and it says he departed into another city because of the persecution that was going on there. And so it's possible, again, we won't split fellowship over this, but it's possible that it was around Acts chapter 12 when the apostle Peter goes up to Antioch seeking refuge there. Well, it says that when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to the face. 
That word withstood, it means to set yourself up against another. It means to show hostility. I mean, this is not, uh, this, this would be an awkward situation. You're at, a, you're at a fellowship meeting and all of a sudden you see this preacher stands up and gets in the face of this preacher and he's going to town at him. I mean, that, that would just bring a weird, awkward silence. And that's what was going on. And it tells us later on that it was public. It was in front of them all. And so he withstands into the face. Well, what this means is Paul got up in Peter's face. Why did he do that? It says because he was to be blamed. It means that he was at fault. He stood condemned, that he was guilty. What was he guilty of? Look at verse 12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now, before we can really grasp what's going on here, we need to understand a little bit about where Peter's coming from. So Peter grew up in a very Jewish nationalistic culture, a culture that deemed Gentiles to be inferior dogs. I mean, they were treated as the scum of the earth. They weren't allowed into the inner parts of the temple. They, were, uh, they, they had to completely proselytize to Judaism to become a Jew. And even that, it was a very strenuous process. And so he, that's the environment he grew up in. They literally hated Gentiles. And then on top of that, they also held to strict dietary laws. They couldn't eat bacon. There were only certain types of fish they could eat, only certain types of birds they could eat, and insects they could eat. It was very specific, very narrow. And so that's how Peter grew up under that Jewish nationalistic system under the Mosaic law. Well, in Acts chapter 10, God kind of turned his world upside down. Because it tells us that while Peter was praying on the rooftop, he received a vision from God of this sheet coming down that had all kinds of unclean animals on it. And the voice of God speaks to him and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter objects and he says, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And so he says, unclean food, unclean uh, dietary, dietary things, it's never touched my lips. And so I can't eat this. And here's what God's response was. Basically this, I'm going to paraphrase. But what I have called cleansed, you have no right to call unclean. What I have cleaned, you can't call unclean. And we know that this wasn't just talking about animals and dietary laws, because what happens in Acts chapter 10 is Peter goes to a Roman city in Caesarea to a Roman soldier by the name of Cornelius, and he leads a whole house full of people to faith in Christ, and the Holy Ghost fell on them. And then he proceeds to go to the Jews and to tell them, hey, all I know is they receive the same Holy Ghost by the same faith of the same salvation in the same person as we did. And so he defended the fact that the Gentiles had come to faith in Christ and that that was all they needed was faith in Christ. So that's where he's coming from. So now you fast forward, Acts chapter 11. He's met with the apostle Paul and Barnabas. And they have agreed, yes, the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, apart from any works of the law. We agree. Then you go to Acts chapter 12. Peter is imprisoned after James is beheaded. And then when Peter is miraculously released, he heads up to Antioch with this newfound reality that the Gentiles are well within the scope of God's salvation and that the dietary laws have been abolished. And so as he comes to the church at Antioch, he welcomes and he partakes in fellowship with them. 
sitting at a table with Gentiles, something he perhaps had never done in his life, at least before Acts chapter 10. And so he's sitting here with Gentiles. Perhaps he's eating bacon. He's eating their type of food that they would eat in Syria. And so he's partaking and he's having a great time. Well, then it tells us that there were brethren that came from James. There are some who suggest that these were Judaizers who also uh, compelled people to keep the law. It's, it's hard to say that. It says they were brethren. It says they did come from James. And James had just said, no, they don't need the works of the law. Nevertheless, these Jews come up that Peter was evidently familiar with. And when they come, it says that he withdrew himself. That means that he shrank back. It means that he cowered away. The idea is that he shriveled away and he separated himself. That's a word that means to, to mark off by boundaries, to establish limits, to exclude. And so now you've got this man who has just, just spent who knows how many times and how long and how many occasions, but he had just spent probably a good amount of time fellowshipping with the Gentiles, eating whatever they were eating. But now all of a sudden, because these Jews are coming, he's gotten up from the table and he's gone over and sat with the Jews. And it's actually going to go a little further than that is what we're going to see. And so this is what's going on here is he withdraws himself. Now, why had Peter shriveled back? Why had he, uh, I'm going to put it this way. Why had he acted in a way that was inconsistent with his beliefs? Look what it says at the end of verse 12. Fearing them which are of the circumcision. What that means is this. His fear led him to distort the gospel because it didn't fit in with the Jewish system. And what I'm telling you tonight is that the gospel cannot be distorted for fear that it doesn't fit in with the belief systems of the day. And so that means that we can't normalize or trivialize the damning nature of sin. It means that we, we can't marginalize God's judgment in the name of his love. We, we can't diminish the reality or the fearfulness of hell just because it's not a popular message. We can't weaken the necessity or the exclusivity of faith in Christ to just say all paths lead to God or in the end love wins. We can't distort the gospel just because it doesn't fit in with the popular winds of our culture. We can't water down the gospel simply because it doesn't jive with the cultural narrative or else before we know it, we will have no gospel at all. Peter's fear distorted the gospel. But I also want you to see that his actions affected other Jewish Christians as well. Look at verse 3. It says, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. What does dissembled mean? Well, it's a very big Greek word. Synipocrathesin. That's the word. Synipocrathesin. Okay. Two words here. So you've got sin, like, like, not like bad sin, but we're talking about like synchronize. We're talking about being in sync, talking about synergy. And so that's the beginning of it is, is sin. It means together. And then hypocrathesin. What does that sound like? Hypocrisy, right? And so what this, when you put it back to all together, it's really this, synchronized hypocrisy. They were all in on it together. That it wasn't just Peter, but because of his actions, all the other Jews joined in on this hypocrisy. The biblical word hypocrisy is actually an interesting word that's used in the theatrical industry that it means to put on a mask in order to play the part of somebody else. So it was used in the dramas, in the theaters. And so what this literally means is when the Jews came, Peter 
and all these other Jews put on a mask, not a COVID mask. They put on a play acting mask and they pretended to be something that was in contradiction to what they professed to believe. That's where they were. It got so bad that even Barnabas, it says, was carried away with their dissimulation. Again, dissimulation is the hypocrisy. Same word. They all put their mask on because it benefited their standing with the Jews. See, masking your belief has an effect on other people. Putting on the mask at church and taking it off at home, that affects the children. That affects your family. When you act one way at church, but then you go home and you're a completely different person, that has an effect on how they view the gospel. Uh, put, playing the right songs or singing the right songs at church, but then jamming out in the car with your friends, hey, that gives your friends a perspective of the gospel. And so when you when you mask, when you put it off, I'm a Christian and then you go and you don't act like a Christian, that has a negative effect on the gospel. Having a fish or a cross on your business logo and then going off at your clients or going off at the financial institution, that affects how others view the gospel. I mean, what is the primary accusation that the loss rails at the church of Jesus Christ? It's full of hypocrites. And to that, I say this, unfortunately, far too often they're right. Far too often. There are way too many people with a masked Christianity who live in contradiction to what they profess to believe. But I do want to say this, that just because Christians live that way does not leave the lost world unaccountable to God. They will still stand before God and they still have a responsibility to receive the message of Jesus Christ because it's about who Jesus is, not who the fallen people he's trying to save are. <laughs> and so uh, what I'm saying is this, that when you act that way, when you act in the secular world in a way that contradicts your Christian belief system, that is how they view the gospel. That's the effect it has on them. It turns them away from it. But it's not just the lost world, because when you believe in one gospel, but you practice another gospel, it can lead Christians to do the same thing. It can lead them to put their masks on. And they say, well, if so-and-so is going to go to church and then be able to go out and do this, then I should be able to go to church and go out and do this. It has an effect. And that's what we see here is Peter's actions quickly spread to the other Jews, including Barnabas, Paul's companion. So why did Paul feel it necessary to confront Peter? Why don't you look at me at verse 14. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. That's what the problem is. This word walked uprightly, it's a neat word. You look it up. If it was transliterated, it would be this, orthopodiatry. Orthopodiatry. That's the literal Greek transliteration. Well, what is an orthopodiatrist. It's a foot doctor. <laughs> the word ortho means to straighten out, to make straight. And the podiatry would be the foot. And so the idea is, what does a foot doctor do? Well, if the ankle is out of joint, what he's going to do is do surgery to straighten it out. If a toe is broken, he's going to do surgery to straighten it out. And so what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is there's a straight line that's supposed to be walked and your actions are walking in contradiction to the line. What is the line? He says, it's the truth of the gospel. In other words, their feet were not aligned to their beliefs. 
And so Paul confronts Peter with his actions because they were inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. Well, what does Paul do? How does he confront Peter here? I love this. He reminds him of the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all in public, this is in front of everybody. Here's what he says. If thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? What does that mean? Here's what Paul is saying. If before these Jews came, you were living over here as a Gentile, and you were fine sitting and eating and fellowshipping with them, and you were fine eating whatever meats that they had and drinking whatever drinks that they had, if you were fine with that and not living as a Jew, when you actually were a Jew, then why are you now compelling Gentiles to live as the Jews when you were living like you didn't need to live like a Jew? Yeah. <laughs> See, it, this had apparently gotten to the point where Peter was not just himself going over to the table with the Jews, but he was telling the Gentiles, you need to come over as well. You need to become a Jew. You need to keep the dietary laws. Perhaps you need to keep the holy days. And perhaps you even need to be circumcised. I mean, when it says compel, it means by physical force. And so that means he was forcing them to live like a Jew when moments later he was demonstrating to them that he didn't need to live like a Jew. You know what that's called? hypocrisy. And so P Paul's confronting Peter for this. And what does he do? Look at verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now that sounds derogatory where it says not sinners of the Gentiles. He said, we are Jews by natural nature. We're not sinners like them. Okay. That's not what he's doing. Here's what he's saying is this. We were law keepers. They were law breakers. Okay, that's what he's getting at. And so we were Jews by nature. We came up in this system. We lived perfect according to the law. We did everything we were supposed to do as Jews. So we were law keepers and they were law breakers. And yet what happened to us? Verse 16, knowing, he says, here's what happened. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be declared righteous before God. It means to no longer be seen as guilty, no longer seen as condemned. But when God looks at your life, he declares you. You may not be righteous, but you know what he does? He declares you to be righteous even in your sin. Why? Because you placed your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by whom or who suffered the payment for our sin. In other words, Jesus did what was necessary to remove our sin, replace it with his righteousness. And thus, when God looks at you, he declares you to be righteous. You know what he's saying here? Peter, you of all people, I'm just going to put it that way. This was confrontational. We who were Jews by nature, we were keepers of the law. And what happened to us? We came to the knowledge and the realization that no matter how hard we tried to keep the law, we couldn't do it enough to be righteous before God. And he says, Jesus met me on the, he doesn't say this, but I'm just going to infer this, that Jesus met me on the Damascus road. And you know what he showed me? Your righteousness isn't good enough. Jesus had you for three years. 
in his school of discipleship. You remember all your failures. You remember all your shortcomings. You remember the way that you were walking on the water and moments later you were sinking, kind of like you are right now. <laughs> you, you remember when, when you told Jesus, no, you're not going to be crucified. You remember when you told Jesus, I'm going to die with you. You tried everything that you could to be everything you should be and to make yourself righteous before God. And here's what you found to be true. You couldn't do it, could you? So what did you do? Well, Jesus showed you, you can't do it, but I'm going to do it for you. And he lived it before you. You saw him walk in the righteousness of the law and he perfectly fulfilled it. And yet he went and died on the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb of God to take away your sin and mine. And so, you know, full well in all you're trying to keep the law, you couldn't do it. And so you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and it was your faith in Jesus Christ, not your righteous works of the law that declared you righteous and justified before God. And then he says this, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No man can be declared righteous by the works of the law. And so what Peter's communicating to him is this, that the truth of the gospel is that it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter where you come from and it doesn't matter what you do. The only way to be justified is by faith in Jesus Christ. See, Peter's actions were inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. How so? He separated. He excluded some. And he limited it to being a Jew. What that means is this. Peter placed a label on who could and who could not be justified and accepted before God. He went right back to Acts chapter 10. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He went right back to acting as though the gospel was limited to Jews. But then he also did this. He added the works of the law to faith in Christ. See, Peter had to be confronted because those very actions were inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. See, the gospel says all. Peter's actions said Jews. The gospel said faith. Peter's actions said law. They were inconsistent. See, actions that are inconsistent with the truth of the gospel must be confronted in our lives. While the gospel is an all-inclusive gospel, it's possible for you to exclude others from it, to place a label on who can and who cannot be saved. See, you might look at the radical left and you would say, look at their positions. Look at what they think about abortion. I mean, who kills innocent babies? Who does that? I mean, they're pre-born. They can't defend themselves. They have rights too. And so how could these monsters possibly be saved? You can look at it and and say that, look at how they uh, look at how they view Christians. Look at the way that they hate on Christians, mock at Christians. Look at the way that they've rejected God. Look at the way that they're trying to remove God from the public square. How could God ever want to save them? And you can place a label on people like that. You might look at those that are of LGBTQ lifestyles and 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 look at them and say, look at how they fundamentally rebel against God. 
Look at the way that they say, I am not who God created me to be. I'm not going to like who God created me to like. I'm not going to marry who God says that I ought to marry. I want to do what I want, whatever feels good to me. How can somebody who's so rebellious against God ever get saved? And so you can write off an entire portion of our community, especially here in Boulder, Colorado. You could. You might look at the wealthy in our community and think, look at everything they've got. How could they possibly think they need God? How could they possibly think that they need heaven? How could they possibly think that they need Jesus? They think they're living heaven on earth right now. I mean, even Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And so why should we go to those parts of our community? Maybe we should just go to the poor parts of the community. Or it could be that you would look at somebody because of the color of their skin, maybe because they're Muslim and they wear a turban and because they're Middle Eastern or maybe because they're Indian and they've got the, the Hindu dots on their head and because of their religious system, because of their ethnic and cultural upbringing, they're hopeless. They're too far gone in, in their belief system and in the darkness of idolatry, they're too far gone. They can't be saved. Well, listen, you could also be looking at the gospel and see that it's grace alone through faith alone and Jesus alone and yet it's it's possible to limit the gospel only to the good and the moral. To say that, no, it's for those who dress the part, look the part, and act the part, and talk the part. It's not for those who are strung out on drugs in the streets, those who are in drunken brawls. It's not for those who are tatted up with gang symbols. It's not for uh, the person who lives, looks, and acts like a hippie. The gospel is just for this group of people. And you can find yourself putting a label on who can and who cannot be saved. And that is wholly inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. Because the gospel says that anybody can be saved because it's not about who we are. It's not about where we come from. It's not about the good things that we do. But it's because of who Jesus is. And it's because of where he came from. And it's because of what he did on the cross of Calvary to pay the price for our sin and to exchange our sin for his righteousness so that we can be declared righteous before God. What I'm trying to say is this, if we're not careful, our message can be inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. But you know what else? Our lives can be inconsistent with the gospel. We may have experienced the forgiving grace of God and yet not forgive others. It's possible to receive mercy from God and yet be unmerciful and judgmental toward others. You've been welcomed by God just as you are, and yet you may be unwelcoming to other people just as they are. God made himself available to you, and yet you would make yourself unavailable to others. God justly dealt with your sin through Christ's death on the cross, and yet you might overlook your sin as though it's nothing. Or you might overlook other people's sin and say, God's going to win everybody over in the end. That's not consistent with the truth of the gospel. God gives us grace to grow, and yet you can find yourself unwilling to give others the same grace to grow. And how about this? God came from heaven to us. And yet you might be unwilling to leave where you are to go to others with the same gospel that you graciously were able to receive. See, when your life is inconsistent with the truth of the gospel, your life becomes masked in hypocrisy. And so our lives have to be a consistent reflection of the truth of the gospel. We've got to be willing to treat others in a way that's consistent with the way that God has treated us. Peter clearly had gotten away 
from that. He had put on a mask and was acting along the way in a way that was inconsistent with his faith in Christ. So Paul chose to confront him when his actions were inconsistent with the gospel. Why is that? Or how did he do that? By reminding him of the gospel. You see, he reminds Peter that he had already attempted to live by the works of the law in order to obtain righteousness with God. And, and, and that he came to the conclusion that it never could happen. And so Jesus revealed himself to Peter as his only hope to be justified before God. And because of that, he believed the gospel. He trusted Christ and he was forgiven and he was justified. He set aside the self-righteousness by the works of the law and he trusted in Christ by faith and he was justified. Now what Peter needs to do is he needs to take the same grace that he had received and show it to others. To show them that, hey, it's not exclusive. It's inclusive. It's for everybody. And to show them it's not by the works of the law, because I tried that and I couldn't find it. It's by the faith of Jesus Christ. And so that means if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're acceptable before God. If you've placed your faith in Christ, he's declared you righteous. And you don't need the works of the law. See, there are times for Peter here when he needed to be confronted because his actions were inconsistent with the gospel and Paul confronted him with the gospel. See, and there are times in our lives when our actions might be inconsistent with the truth of the gospel and what we really need is to be confronted with the gospel once again, with how we were saved. You need to remember that there was nothing about who you were or what you had done that could make you justified before God. But it was only because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross that you could be justified, forgiven and reconciled unto God. And so now you need to go and show the same grace that you have received to others who are in need of grace. On September 6th, 2018, an off-duty officer in Dallas by the name of Amber Geiger had returned home from a very long shift. She got home, was exhausted as could be, barely keeping her eyes awake on the way home, and she ended up parking on the uh, wrong level of the parking garage that was attached to her apartment complex. And so because she was on the wrong level, she started making her way to the wrong house. And so she starts going to the apartment, and when she goes to what she thought was her house, she sees that the door is open. Well, now she's alarmed, and so she draws her weapon, anticipating coming across an intruder, and she begins to make her way into the house, and she uh, sees a strange man sitting on the couch, and she panicked and pulled the trigger, and she ended up shooting an innocent young black man by the name of Botham Jean. And as you can imagine, I mean, this young man was a good young man with a, an exceptional faith in Christ, as well as the rest of his family. He was an accountant, 26 years old, sitting comfortably on the couch of his own home. And his life was tragically ended. Well, as you can imagine, the trial morphed into a very racially charged debate as you have a white 
female officer shooting an innocent black man in his own home. And so it was a very high-profile trial. Amber clearly acted wrongly, even if there was no ill intent to begin with. Everyone demanded justice for this young man. And she experienced immense grief, immense remorse. By the end of the trial, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for second-degree murder, unplanned, un not meditated, not premeditated. Well, as is customary, the Jean family was permitted by the judge to give their witness impact statements, which that's usually a time where the family will express their deep grief, pain, anger, frustration, even hatred and condemnation for the perpetrator. But something happened that was very unexpected. Botham Jean's little brother, Brant, sat down in front of the microphone and he looked that woman in the eye and he said this, I love you. I forgive you. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I don't even want you to go to jail. The best thing that you could do and that both of them would want you to do is to give your heart to Jesus Christ. And he reiterated again, I love you and I forgive you and I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I don't even want you to go to jail. There was a long pause and he looks up at the judge and hesitatingly, though, he asked her, can I give her a hug? Again, and he said, please. And there was a long pause. And the, the judge, Tammy Kemp, actually would recall later that she was on the verge of saying no. But then another desperate please came out of the young man's mouth. She nodded and both or Brant gets up from his seat and he begins to walk toward this guilty woman and she makes her way around the table and she runs to him, falls on his neck, begins to weep. And they're there and they're embracing for a very long time. Many times they separated and then came back together again. Shocked the world. This was, again, a high-profile trial that was on the news everywhere. As people are watching this, the world was weeping with them. I was actually watching the video of this this week, and the newscasters on this particular news site, as they're watching this, they were overcome with emotion, and they began to weep. And everybody's just thinking, how can the victim of a murderous act be so gracious and so compassionate towards someone who had just killed their brother. While all this was going on, Judge Tammy Kemp left the, the courtroom for a few moments. The trial had concluded. The sentence had been issued. And she resurfaces and she goes over to the family. She hugs each and every one of them, gives them her deepest sympathy for the loss of both of them. And then she begins to walk over toward this guilty woman. And again, I'm watching this video and the newscasters are just, they're in shock. They're saying, I've, I've never seen this before that a judge walks up to and approaches 
the guilty. And as she stands there in front of Amber, she's holding in her hand a Bible that she had gone to get just moments prior from her room. And she gives her this Bible and Amber asks her, do you forgive me? And the judge said, I forgive you. And as she handed her that Bible, she said, can God forgive me? And she said, she gave her that Bible. She said, you read this verse, pointed her to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And she, and, and you could see it, it was very intense conversation that this judge looks this guilty woman in the eye and, and gives her the gospel and tells her, you trust in Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. That was a courtroom full of people who had been so graced by the gospel of Jesus Christ that they were willing to extend the same grace and compassion to this guilty woman. In other words, their feet aligned with their belief. Their actions were consistent with the truth of the gospel. See, the gospel is this, that the judge of all the earth stepped down from the bench and he came to us who are all guilty. And he suffered and died on the cross and took our sentence upon himself so that we could be declared not guilty, free and righteous, and we could have eternal life. He did so not because we were worthy, but because he was willing. And what this means is we need to put our actions where our beliefs are. And we need to take the same grace that's been given to us and we need to give it to others. We can't exclude some people out of the capabilities of the gospel. And we can't distort the gospel out of fear of what's going on out there. No, we've got to stay true to the gospel, even if it may not be convenient. And we've got to stay true to the gospel. Here's why. Because there's a world around us that needs it. Jesus came and died not the, so that we should be silent. Not the, he, he didn't come to us so that we would be unwilling to go to them. No, he came to us. He offered grace. He offered forgiveness. And that means we need to go out and offer the same gospel to the people in our community. But it can also mean this. There may be somebody in your life, a friend, a family member, a coworker, even an enemy. And with them, you've not shown the same grace, the same mercy, and the same forgiveness that you have received from Christ. And that's what this message is calling us to. To not be like Peter and go back to what, what we were like before the gospel, but to take how the gospel has affected us and let it affect others. When, we, when our actions get out of line with the gospel, what we deeper, deeply need is to be confronted once again with the gospel. Father, we come to you tonight and we're thankful for 
the gospel.